0: One time, a very garrulous, very talkative woman made an appointment with that great 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. She said she had some things she wanted to talk about and get off her chest. Now, he knew how garrulous she was, and so he blocked off a good chunk of time. And he sat down in his study and he invited her to do the same. And he said, well, what's on your mind? And she began to talk a mile a minute about everything going on in her life, about uh, the sins that she was struggling with and, and uh, her frustration at her, her lack of spiritual growth, about her volunteer work and all the things she was doing and her involvement with the church and how long she'd been involved in the church. And, and she kept coming around slowly but surely to a theme and, and Spurgeon began to understand that why she wanted to meet with him was because she, she couldn't get a sense that she was doing enough. That, that God had given her life, and she had it turned away from him and, and sinned, and, and she was indeed a sinner. She recognized that, but she couldn't come back and close that gap. And so finally he realized, ah, this is what I need to address. So he waited and waited for her to stop to take a breath, and then he jumped in. And he said, ma'am, you are correct. You are unable to do enough. You are indeed, like all of us, a sinner, a miserable sinner. And what you need is not to keep on trying harder and harder, but what you need is to simply accept the gift that God has given you in Jesus Christ that he has paid for your sins, taken them on his shoulders and done away with them, and he will now give you eternal life. When you receive that, you'll serve him gladly, cheerfully, not with this sense of a, a crushing weight. And she stopped talking for a moment, and she digested this. And something dawned on her face, and she said, but Pastor Spurgeon, if Jesus does that for me, he'll never hear the end of it. This woman just coming to a realization of what Christ had done for her had an epiphany and actually said something beyond her understanding that when we have received eternal life, when we have been washed and cleansed of our sins, when we who were enemies of God, while we were enemies of God, received that gift of salvation. He should never hear the end of it. He will never hear the end of it, according to the Scriptures. We will continue to praise Him and thank Him as long as we have breath, and after the resurrection, we will continually, forever praise Him and thank Him. And that is the theme here, perhaps, of this story in Luke 17. We see how important... Thanksgiving is not as a holiday to come together and eat turkey, although that's fun, but as a lifestyle that for believers, this ought to be not only our continual attitude, but the the object of our very lives. Now this begins, this passage, with a little context saying that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. You may remember years back we did a whole study of Luke, and I kept emphasizing that aspect of things. In chapter 9 of Luke, we, we begin the second third of the story with, and Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And then the whole entire remainder of the book is the story of him on his way to Jerusalem to die, His story of arriving, going into the city, being killed, rising again, and accomplishing the mission for which he'd come. And Luke wants to remind us here, he's still on his way. All this stuff that's happening is in the context of him, face on Jerusalem, headed toward the cross. Bear that in mind as we read this passage. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers. Now, remember, lepers were uh, unclean people. They were people ceremonially unclean in the Jewish law. They were also people who were very much contagious and unclean from even a Roman or, or pagan point of view. No one wanted them around. And if you know a little something about the Bible, you might say, how is it that he enters into a village and there are lepers? Aren't they having to stay outside the camp. Isn't that like the whole Old Testament law? And it's true. In the Old Testament law, lepers had to go outside the camp. But once they came into the promised land and they were no longer camping, these whole, these, these laws, all this, this stuff about how unclean people and and how uh, people who were suffering different illnesses had to interact, they had to be applied to cities and and agrarian life. And what happened was that all the people who had to stay outside the camp, it was interpreted as outside of walled cities. So they couldn't go into a city proper, through the gate, and into this kind of closed-in area of humanity where they might uh, become contagious and cause some kind of outbreak, but they could pass through a village. You know, there were these sort of nebulous, undefined suburbs of these walled cities, and and there were sometimes agrarian villages that spread out over the countryside, and so they could pass through as long as they shouted as they went, uncleaned, uncleaned, so everyone would have some warning, and they could clear out. Of course, this was a good thing to protect those who were in those villages, but for the leper, how horrible! That the vast majority of your communication with people outside of your little leopard colony was you declaring yourself to be unclean. At the top of your lungs, reminding everyone and yourself that you were slowly dying. That you were a reminder of everyone's mortality. And for those who were part of your former community, if you were a Jew, reminding everyone of the effects of the fall and sin. Over time, this undoubtedly would become your identity. How You thought that this is what I am, unclean. This is who I am. I am unclean. What a lonely life. If you had family that was not leprous, you would not even be able to have any close contact with them, any real communion with them, only shouted conversations over a distance. And this was the lot in life for many people in the biblical world. If you want to know a little more about this passage, you can start reading between the lines and you'll learn something about this particular group of lepers. They're interracial. This is is not just a group of Jews, but we're we're in the borderlands between Galilee and Samaria, and we've got both Samaritans and Jews in the same group. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but he's still quite far away. Go to the last book of the Bible. It's called Maps, and you will find... That's still a little funny. I'm going to keep saying it until it wears off all the way. You, you will find that way up north, there's Galilee, mostly Jews there. There's where the Sea of Galilee, predictably, is. And then beneath that, south of that, is Samaria, and then beneath that is Judea, where Jerusalem is. And this group is interracial because of where they are, but it reminds us of what happens when we are feeling persecuted, oppressed when we are feeling trials and tribulations, when people throughout history have been uh, shunned and and viewed as outcasts, the old distinctions that would separate them would often fall away. It's crazy that these people are living together, Jews and Samaritans. The the woman at the well said to Jesus, how can you even ask me for a drink? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. And then there's the little explanatory for Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other. Unless you're a leper. Unless you're an outcast. Unless all, all of, of humanity looks at you as kind of the dregs, the, the undesirable. Then you band together. We see the same sort of thing happening in the early church. We see the same sort of thing happening in parts of the world today where the church is persecuted. In America, we've got every freedom. We've got all these things we are very thankful for. And we use them often to just divide and, and segment ourselves into a million little groups and kind of bubble ourselves off from each other, and yet where Christians are persecuted, there's no room for that. They gather together and worship because they're outcasts, because they're, they're not welcome in the rest of society. And there's bad blood here. There's a lot to be overcome. You know, we think about this Jew-Samaritan uh, conflict kind of as, as being sort of cute, I think, because of the way we teach Children, the way we explain these things when we're talking about the, the Good Samaritan. I think of the Veggie Tales movie, right? What was it that the Jews and the Samaritans in that, in that particular production did? Well, they were in two different cities, and they threw shoes at each other. All right, that's, that's, I mean, you don't want to get real dark and grim for the kids, but this was dark and grim. Blood had been spilled. The Samaritans could remember... I mean, it had happened before they were born, these Samaritans, but there was a, a communal memory of when a, a mob-slash-army of Jews had come to their sacred temple on Mount Gerizim and burned it to the ground. Anyone who lived anywhere near Samaria had remember, could remember going through or around even and having unpleasant interactions, throwing rocks or having rocks thrown at them, this sort of thing. They thought that they belonged and the other group did not. It may ring a bell a little bit for the situation there today. And yet, these lepers, they said, Well, we're Jews and you're Samaritans, and we kind of think of you as the outsiders, the Gentiles. You kind of think of us as those who don't have it quite right. But we're all lepers. We're all walking dead. And it, we all worship Yahweh, the same God. And our only hope is that He will give us a miracle and heal us. So they lived together. They, they work together, they, they survive together, and they come to Jesus together in this passage. They come down and find him, and they, at a distance, shout to him, lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, Jesus heal a leper, but it was a much bolder leper. He was like, I'm not allowed near people, but there's Jesus I don't care if they kill me. I'm taking my chance. And he just, vroom, beeline for him. Jesus touched him. Rather than the leper making Jesus unclean, Jesus made the leper clean. And he said to him, go to the priests. You're clean. So he went, and he was healed. This, this is not a group of bold lepers like that. They're hedging their bet a little bit. They stay at a distance. And in this part of the world, of course, the topography is such you could find sort of a sloping rock face, and the acoustics would be great for you to shout as he was going by at a distance, Jesus, Master! And he'd hear, and he'd turn and look, and he'd be able to count how many there were, which factors in here to the story. Heal us. Make us clean. And it's different from that Luke 5 encounter, in which he said, I am willing, be clean, and healed him, and then sent him to the priest. Why to the priest? Because in Leviticus chapter 14, as I'm sure you remember, it says that you, when you are made clean or when you are purified of leprosy or these skin conditions, you go to the priest, the priest inspects you, and says, okay, you are clean, and then welcomes you back into communal life. You're no longer outside the camp. It made perfect sense. But in this situation, he says, go to the priests, and they look down, and they're still leprous. They're not healed yet. They're not clean yet. But they go. They obey. And they're taking a risk. The least of which is they're going to look very foolish if they go up to a priest and say, hey, can you clarify that I'm clean? Can you give me your stamp of approval? And they're still full of leprosy. But when you're an outcast, a pariah in society, you don't so much care about looking foolish, the risk would be that they would be met with hostility going into the midst of society, of civilization, as lepers asking to be declared clean. No, this is a risk, and yet they take it. They obey. Now, this very important few words here at the end of verse 14. And in Sunday school, when we did this whole uh, series on how to study the Bible, inductive Bible study, we talked a lot about observation, more about observation than any other part of the process. It's important. You read through this passage, and you might skip over these words. Jesus says, go to the priests. As they went, they were made clean, and then you just jump on to the next thing. But read again, and read again, and read again, and don't miss these incredibly important words. As they went, they were cleansed. They weren't cleansed immediately, and then they went. They weren't uh, still leprous when they arrived at the priest, and he saw them with his own eyes become clean. No, it was as they went. And I imagine, as they went, they first noticed in each other Right? Because you can't see your own face. You're not looking at your own self. Maybe they would be tempted to, but I gotta imagine you're used to how everybody looks in your little leprous friend group. Who's missing an ear, who's got boils wear, who's scarred wear, and they're looking at each other and say, wait a minute, look you're 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 being made clean you're you're being am I and they see in each other and in themselves. That God is at work. That Jesus has made them clean as they were going, while they were obeying. And they pick up speed. they got to get to the priest now. Hurry up before this wears off. Be declared clean, except for one of them. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He realizes the priest will be there later. The priest will be there tomorrow. Jesus is passing through on his way to Jerusalem. If I'm going to thank him, I need to do it now. And he goes, and this is not him looking for a quiet little quiet time with Jesus. Hey, let me just say, no, he's shouting with a loud voice, praising God, runs up to Jesus and falls down on his face before him. And there everyone can see what God has done for this man. And then we have a few more very important words. And he was a Samaritan. And he was a Samaritan. Now that sounds like a footnote, and I think that's intentional. The word he here is emphatic. In the Greek, autos, the way it's put in there, it should be italicized in our English translations or underlined. It's almost like he holds that information back for a second on purpose. One of them went back to Jesus, shouting praises to God, fell down on his face, thanking him, praising God. And get this. He was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. That's mind-blowing for those who hear this, this story in the original context. That's impossible for them to get their, their minds around it. The one, the one who came back was a Samaritan. It reminds us a bit of the one who helped that man on the road was a Samaritan, not a Levite, not a priest. This, this is, again, it's hard to get our, our heads into the space where these people had such a history and hated each other so very much. We saw some of the beginnings of it in the book of uh, Nehemiah when we studied it. That as they were trying to rebuild, they had to have the trowel in one hand, the sword in the other, because guerrilla attacks were coming at any moment. That's the beginning of some bad blood. It's a lot like the Israeli-Palestinian thing. I was nervous, most nervous, in going to Israel earlier about being in the middle of that. This, this ancient and, and nasty dispute over who belongs here and going from Israeli-controlled to Palestinian-controlled and through checkpoints, and every other guy has got a machine gun, and there's tension in the air, and they're used to it, and I'm not. Well, this tension was there, the same kind of pregnant tension. And it's one thing for us to say, okay, a Samaritan looked at this poor, pitiful, beaten man and said, i got to help him, pick him up, and take him on his way. It's another for a Samaritan to run up, fall down on his face before a Jew And give thanks to God. This is something we don't want to miss. This is something we want in our lives. Now I've heard it taught, this is uh, sad to me, uh, I've heard it kind of written off, this thanksgiving, and downplayed. Those have said, uh, maybe what happened was this Samaritan got caught up in the moment and he was with this big group of, of Jewish lepers as they're being healed and they're all on their way and then he goes, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm a Samaritan. I can't go with them. I'm not the same religion as them. I'm not going to the same priest as them. Well, I guess I've got the afternoon free. Well, I guess I may as well go find Jesus and thank him. That's not what happened. He wasn't thinking of the wall between them. There was, in the temple, there was a wall. The court of the Gentiles, anyone could go. Then there was a wall to keep the Gentiles out, and then you have the court of the priests. He couldn't have gone through, but these people aren't going to the temple. Again, they're way up north. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in Judea. Jesus didn't say go to the temple. He said go to the priests with an S at the end. Go to the priests. At this point, there's priests in every town. Find them. Go to them. They're on the border between Samaria and Galilee. He says go to the priests. If you're Jewish, you're going to Jewish priests. If you're Samaritan, you're going to Samaritan priests. Go to the priests. And yet he hears those words And he starts to obey, and he's overwhelmed with gratitude, and he has to first go back to Jesus and give thanks. In fact, we want to make sure we don't read anything into the text. We don't even know that this was nine Jews and one Samaritan. Be like the Samaritan. Don't be like the Jews. Careful with that stuff. We don't know that. All we know is that this one guy who came back was Samaritan. Luke thinks it's noteworthy, and he's been slowly building in this growing Thread in the narrative that says this kingdom of God that's being built, this church that Jesus is establishing, it's not just Israel. There's Gentiles involved. The Roman centurion, a Syrophoenician woman, a Samaritan woman, now a Samaritan man. It's it's expanding, it's growing, it's bigger, it's alive, and he's emphasizing this. Jesus got himself in trouble talking about another Gentile leper who was healed. A guy named Naaman who also came back and gave great thanks when Elisha healed him. They pushed him out of the synagogue. They wanted to stone him. Jesus is opening up the gates and, and saying, all who will come and be cleansed. But when he looks at this one, one man out of ten, he answers this way, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? A note on the word foreigner. Language changes. Our Bible's translations need to keep up as we, as we see language change. It's changing quickly now. When I hear the word foreigner, I have all this baggage with it. right? It seems to me like kind of a xenophobic, uh, redneck, maybe even kind of racist thing. I mean, people don't say foreigner anymore. I think of like, what are you, some kind of foreigner? Get out of here. Obviously not what Jesus has in mind. Jesus is not calling this guy a, a derogatory term. He's simply calling it as he sees it. In fact, the King James is probably better for the current setting when it says, no one but this stranger. There's all these people who are insiders. They're part of this worship system. They're in this covenant with God. They know not just the first five books of the Bible, but all of the scriptures. And, and, and they have every advantage, spiritually speaking, and yet they're not here. Only this stranger, this outsider, he's the one who came back. The Greek is alagenes. Alas means other. And genes, like genealogy, born. This other born. This other born guy is the only one who comes back. Born outside of our covenant. Outside of our chosen nation. And yet, he's the one here. He was outside, by the way. When I mentioned that there was a wall between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the priests, what did you imagine? If you're a visual person, you picture things. Maybe 10 feet tall, 20 feet tall, maybe only 5 feet tall, but with spikes on the top. This wall was called the sorig, which means intertwined because there was all this kind of greenery and floral arrangements and things intertwined in it. And it was about this tall, 2 feet. Very nice-looking little wall. Except that every 10 feet, there were signs in Latin and Greek that said, let no other otherborn, let no otherborn, no foreigners, enter inside this barrier. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death follows. Enjoy the rest of your day here at the Jewish temple. <laughs> this is how seriously they took the purity of this place. There was a picture of the purity of God and for it to be defiled was unthinkable. And so you have this guy who's twice removed then. He can't go in because he's a leper. He can't go in because he's a Samaritan. And Jesus looks at him and says, rise, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. And I know your translation probably says your faith has made you well. And that is a faithful translation. But I want you to write, if you write in your Bible, in the margin, a Greek word. I've never told you to do this before. S-O-Z-O. Sozo. That's the word Jesus uses here. Your your faith has sozoed you. And sozo means to save. It's a normal word for to save. When we read it, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess with your lips, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Sozo, sozo, sozo. Sozo. Same word here. Now the context is that he's been saved from this illness, and so your faith has made you well or made you whole. It does work, but we want to keep in view that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Leprosy is a picture of sin. Jesus has made this man whole. He's saved him. It's a picture of what he does spiritually, and the way I read it, he's also saving him that way. Now there was some measure of faith in all ten of them, right? Right? Together, they said, let's go to Jesus. Together, they called out to him as a group, calling him master, and then they obeyed him when he told them to do something that was risky and a little out there. It looks like they've all got the kind of faith that saves. And yet, remember Jesus' parable of the soils. There was shallow soil. The seed landed. It sprouted up right away. It looked like there was faith that saves. And, and the root went down. The plant went up above ground. And then what happened? The root hit the rock layer below The plant above withered before it could ever bear fruit. It's a similar thing happening here. They called out to him and they said, Lord, Lord. Remember Jesus said, all who said Lord, Lord will not enter into the kingdom. They they, they called him master. They did what he said initially. But by not coming back to the feet of the Savior, they missed out on the opportunity to have that once in a lifetime amazing personal face-to-face encounter not at a distance and I shouldn't say face-to-face face-to-feet encounter which is the right kind of encounter to have with Jesus on our face at the foot of the cross on our face at the foot of the Savior humbled and humbling ourselves they missed out and this man the Samaritan did not the Samaritan he's no longer separated from his fellow creatures by his sickness He's no longer separated from his creator by his sinfulness. He's been cleansed. Yes, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, leprosy is a picture of sin. And the cleansing, the healing of it is a picture of our redemption, our our being washed in the blood. In fact, what would they do when they got to the priest? When they arrived at the priest, the priest would take blood and water mixed together, take hyssop, dip it in, and anoint them with it. Asperge them with it. And then they would be clean. That was a, a beautiful picture of what was to come when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, was nailed to a cross, died for our sins, and a, a spear was thrust into his side, and what came out? Blood and water mixed. We are cleansed from our spiritual leprosy in the same way. And, and the isolation that these lepers experience is a picture of the isolation that sin creates, isolating us from our Creator and in many ways from one another. Isolating us from, from coming before Him and properly giving thanks and praise in His presence. And this man now, he's been cleansed of much, and he forgives much, and he loves much. This, this disease, now in Leviticus, by the way, don't, don't eat lasagna while you're reading your Bible if you're in Leviticus, unless you're Lisa and... You know, all your just wounds all the time, it doesn't bother you. But when you're in Leviticus, the word leprosy in your English translation, it covers a variety of different skin issues and, and illnesses. But normally when we read it, we think primarily of what we today call Hansen's disease. It's, it's a disease that they thought was eating away at them, like flesh-eating bacteria today, which is in like my top five fears. But it actually wasn't doing that. It was desensitizing them to pain and, and their natural kind of built-in system of avoiding damage and pain and, and, and injury. And so they'd get to the point where you might be lying there at night with these sores on you and rats and mice could come up and chew on you. You wouldn't even know to kind of knock them away. You could slam your hand on the door and, and you wouldn't even know as it became infected. Things began to eat away at you in that way and you'd fall apart slowly. A horrible death. And that's a picture, I believe, of what sin does for us, desensitizing us slowly to what we have done and and what we've become in the presence and the sight of God until he brings it to our minds. And we read in Romans 1 how we do that long enough, desensitizing ourselves, eventually he will hand us over to our shameful lusts. Death, the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. Just like those lepers, we need a miracle. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus comes, like he did with those lepers, and declares us clean. We look down and go, I am not perfectly clean yet. He says, hey, go to the priest. I declare that when you get there, he will find you to be clean. This leprosy was degenerative. And yet, as we together walk toward our priest, as we journey together, we look and first we see it in each other. Whoa, we're not degenerating anymore. God's doing a miracle. He's making us less and less spiritually leprous, more and more clean, more and more like him. Jesus used the law always that says, this is what God says you must do as a mirror to show people their spiritual condition. If you were a leper, you tried to avoid mirrors. If you were going to get a drink, you did not want to get it from a still pond where you could see your reflection. Horrible reminder of what was happening to you. But Jesus used the law as this perfect mirror to show people, this is your condition. And when we see our condition as sinners, we should be just as desperate as these lepers had become. And when we go to God and He heals us, every time we see who we are now in Jesus Christ and who we're becoming, we should be returning thanks. It occurred to me as I studied this passage that in Leviticus 13... It's the priest who declares the leprous person to be outside the camp, who quarantines them and says, you have to leave. Then in Leviticus 14, it's the priest who welcomes them back in and declares them clean. And so by going to Jesus, when he's told, go to the priests, by going to Jesus, just like that woman in Spurgeon's study, this man may have been acting beyond his understanding. Going to the high priest who declares us clean, who makes us clean by the blood of His cross, and who then stands and says, where are the ten that I have cleansed? Why are they not here giving thanks? How often do we return to Him to give thanks? You know what's wonderful? Jesus isn't passing through on His way somewhere. We have access to Him all the time. We can give thanks to Him whenever our heart desires. And yet, often, it's only crises in our lives that give birth to much prayer, right? And then, as soon as the crisis passes, we might give thanks quickly, like, Ooh, that was close. Thanks, God. But then, what? Like the other nine, we've got stuff to do. We've got to get back to life. We've got places to go. We can't be bothered. We don't have that gratitude. And notice, I I want to make sure I, I point out, Jesus doesn't say, Your gratitude has saved you. Your, thankful, your thankfulness has saved you. Your thanksgiving has saved you. No, your faith has saved you. The gratitude is evidence of that faith. And if that's the case, we are in trouble in our society today, even in the confessing church and the visible church. Never before have so many had so much and been so ungrateful and wanted so much more and desired more, and demanded more, because they thought they deserved more. Now we expect this from unbelievers. Jesus speaks of what we call common grace, which is good stuff that comes to everybody. Right? So he says, the, the sun shines on the righteous and the wicked, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Everyone receives these gifts. And for the most part, the unbelievers have this common grace, but not a common gratitude. They might have a sense of, I'm thankful to the universe or something, but they don't give thanks back to God. For Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. By not glorifying or giving thanks, they showed that the knowledge they had of God had been darkened, their hearts hardened. We expect that. But in the church, we shouldn't see that. In the church, we don't just have common grace but saving grace, amazing grace. And that can't become common grace to us. That can't become commonplace to us. If we are Christians, think about it. We were lepers, hopeless, falling apart, walking dead, and he cleansed us. He should never hear the end of it. We see that throughout the New Testament again and again. Thanks be to God, thanks be to God, thanks be to God. It's a very common refrain to come up throughout the New Testament. A a believing heart cannot help but overflow with thanksgiving to God. Revelation 5, we find out we never will. Then I looked, John writes, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. For eternity, we will thank God. This is a lifestyle and it goes hand in hand with the command to pray without ceasing. And I think about this and I look at my life and I go, how can I be so quick to get discouraged? And grumpy and mopey and my laptop's not working. I got stuff I got to do on it, and I had a bunch of it done, and what the heck, God, come on. What if I took a minute and said, Lord, thank you that I got a laptop to not be working, and a job I need to be doing on it, and a roof over my head, and electricity powering it. Well, I, I could start listing all the many blessings for which I am thankful, and maybe then I would not be such a little diaper baby. Oddly, because we have so much, we seem to be less thankful. It's it's bizarre. And we see that here. The otherborn, the oligenes, the otherborn is the one who's so very thankful. It's kind of new to him. He wasn't inside the covenant community, the temple every year, the synagogue. You know, it's the same thing often with the church. People who are raised in the church, well, it's all just old hat. Yeah, I come sometimes. Yeah, Jesus is important to me. But people who were not raised in the church, oh my goodness, they can't get their mind around what Jesus had done for them. I've made two new good friends in the past few months, both of whom came to faith later in life after pretty rough pasts, and both of whom I wish I had a fraction of the thankfulness and the awe and the praise that they feel and how they try to even wrap their mind around what Christ did for them, How could Christ do that for them? Their otherborn is new to them and and we ought to pray that we will get a portion of that mindset. Recognizing that what God has done for us is no less amazing. It's the same amazing grace. One of my favorite authors is Philip Yancey. In fact, probably my most consistently favorite author over the, over the years and decades. And he once wrote about a time when he was at uh, Yellowstone at Old Faithful. That's a Yellowstone, right? And uh, he, was, he was there for uh, writing a book and, and uh, doing a little research and stuff. He'd been there a few days. He'd seen Old Faithful, I don't know, go off, erupt, whatever it does, a bunch of times. And he was sitting in a restaurant called the Old Faithful Cafe or the Old Faithful Inn. And he's sitting there, it's this place that's got these huge windows and it's got a countdown clock, counting down to when the next eruption is going to be. And he, he, he had seen it enough times that he was, he was not going to rush over, but he noted what happened as it got down to two minutes, then one minute, then 30 seconds. People all left their tables and they all went and pushed their face up against the glass and they're all like, it's going to happen, let's watch, it's going to happen. And then as it erupted, he looked over and he saw that the waitstaff the moment everyone left their tables, descended on them, refilling glasses, taking dishes, doing all the stuff they needed to do. They weren't concerned with what was going on out there. This was their moment to just kind of grab, uh, get ahead in their, in their uh, serving of the tables. It had become commonplace for them. And he thought, man, that's amazing what's happening out there. But to them, it's just another day at work. It's no big deal. We can't allow that to happen in the church for saving grace to become common, common grace, commonplace, the scriptures to be common, reading the words of Jesus to be so familiar it's like reading the weather report or something. We cannot allow that to happen. We must be the people who love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. We love to tell the story. And there are all these things that will blind us to His amazing grace in the moment and they're almost all fleeting things. In this oh, My car's broken down. My laptop's not working. My kid is sick. My boss is being a jerk this week. And the enemy will use that to blind us to all the things that God is doing to make us more like Jesus. Even in those trials, we ought to be thankful. I once heard a story about a few guys who were they were out in Montana, they were walking along, and they decided to take a shortcut through a field. They'd done it several times before. They knew the farmer, he was not, you know, he isn't a jerk, he wouldn't shoot at him or anything. They said, let's just cut through here. They hopped the fence, they started walking through, got about halfway through, and looked up, and they found that the farmer had gotten a new animal, and that it was a bull. They thought maybe it was like a T-Rex, and its vision was based on movement. None of them were wearing red. They thought maybe they'd be okay, but they weren't. The bull looked right at him and started doing like that thing. And he said, okay, go for it. They started sprinting. He started running behind them. They looked up. They did the math. The fence is that far away. He's gaining this quickly. One of them turned to another one and said, you've you got to pray for us. We're not going to make it. He said, pray, why me? He said, your dad's a deacon. You know what you're doing. And they were running. He's coming up behind him. They could feel his breath on, on their backs, and he, he thought and thought, and he, he thought suddenly of the prayer he heard his dad say each and every day. And he shouted at the top of his lungs, Lord, for what we are about to receive, make us truly grateful. <laughs> in our trials, may that be our prayer as well. You know that thanks be to God that comes up again and again and again in the Scriptures? Every time but two, it starts with but. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God. Here comes persecution. Paul's in prison. 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We we see in, in Acts 5. But thanks be to God, even when my back has been laid open by a scourge, they went out praising God, rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer for the honor of his name. But thanks be to God. And these stupid things, big and little, neutralize our thanksgiving. And we become often like the nine. got somewhere to go. i got something to do. Even those of us who come on Sundays to church, are we the nine on the other days? We've got thanksgiving once a year. Is that my day to get it all in? No, that's my day to watch 1,600 football games, right? But we must remember every single day we've been given gifts, and we must return thanks. Our Lord has done so much for us. He's saved us. He's washed us in the blood of the Lamb. He's taken spiritual lepers and made us clean and given us life. He's given us everything we have. He's given us common grace. He's given us special grace. He's given us saving grace. And He should never, ever hear the end of it. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for every good gift You have given us. We pray, Lord, that you would not hear the end of it from us. That we would be thankful people. And that thanksgiving would be our our attitude, our spirit, our lifestyle. That in everything we would say, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who has given us Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.